0: Let's pray together. Lord, you are great and you are mighty. You are full of loving kindness and grace and mercy towards us. And Lord, it is our joy and it is our pleasure to lift our voices to you in song, reflecting that we who were once your enemies, who were estranged from you, you have brought near to yourself. Lord, that you have offered to us a great salvation. And Lord, that just fills our heart with wonder and awe and gratitude at who you are and what you've done. So Lord, as we come now to your word, I pray that you would be opening our hearts, Lord, make us attentive to it, Lord, that you make us receptive to your word. It's not the natural disposition of us, Lord, to pay close attention to your word, Lord. We are fickle and hard-hearted. We're easily distracted, Lord, but I pray through the power of your spirit that you would be convicting and changing and transforming our hearts. And Lord, we pray this with great confidence because we know that your son has come and he died to purchase these great and mighty promises for us that you gave us the Holy Spirit as a seal to assure that these things would come about. So we thank you and we trust you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's my joy and pleasure to be able to share the word with you today, especially since we get to give Pastor Bob a break this week. That's always a good thing. Um, And and since I'm not preaching this series, I basically get to preach about whatever has been like fresh on my heart, what I've been thinking about over the past couple months and what's been resonating with me. So it's, it's always a lot of fun to be able to come up here and share this because you receive this information and after a while you just want to share it eventually. So um, I want to actually preach from Psalms 32. So if you'll turn there. Now it seems like as much as I learn from the Bible, every time I'm in it, the great and mighty basic truths, as it were, of the gospel make my heart more and more excited. So when I hear um, psalms about confession and forgiveness, that excites me more than it did even five to ten years ago. It was exciting when I got saved. It's more exciting for me today because I know even more of what's wrapped up into it, the relationship that I'm sharing now with the Father through the Son empowered by the Holy Spirit. So these truths become just more and more precious to me. And then also along with that is a life of experience, that as I find myself sinning, repenting, and being restored, and finding the joy of my salvation again, this isn't just head knowledge, this becomes experience knowledge, and so I come alongside of the psalmist, and in this one we're going to talk about forgiveness and confession, and I want to just give a hearty yes and amen. I've experienced this, Amen. So let me kind of set the context of Psalms 32. There, there are a variety of psalms in the book, the Psalter. And there's some that deal with, what, with penitence, with coming before the Lord and confessing sin. Now, the one that we read for the scripture reading was Psalms 51. That's like the classic repentance psalm. Created me a new heart, O Lord. I, I was brought forth in iniquity. I need a new heart. And we, we know that, and it's precious to us. We know from textual notes that Psalms 51 was written very, uh, very soon after David had fallen into sin with Bathsheba. He had an affair with her. And then in his attempt to cover up her pregnancy, he layered deception upon deception upon deception to try to keep himself from being exposed as a sinner in the eyes of all of Israel. And at the end, Uriah has been murdered... Bathsheba is having a child out of wedlock, and, and David is completely unbalanced. Actually, if, if you um, just keep your hand in Psalm 32 and turn maybe to um, 2 Samuel 12, it seems like at the end of chapter 11, when this whole David and Bathsheba event is going on, that in some ways David's won. He got what he wanted. He, is dead. And Bathsheba is his wife. But the last verse kind of gives you um, some insight to what's going on. This all happens, and this word but, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And then in chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain, many, in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and grew it up with him and his, with his children. And he used to eat his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he, did not, because he had did this thing, and because he had no pity. I mean, yes, it's a lamb, right? This man deserves to die. He's angry. And so Nathan just turns that rage right on him and he says in verse 7, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives, and in your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added it to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil? In his sight, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised it and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So now, I mean, just imagine. David's been harboring this sin for a while now. And he's, he's done so much. I mean, the only one who probably knows about this affair is maybe Joab. And Joab's kind of a scoundrel himself, so Joab's not going to care. But his heart's been tortured, and suddenly Nathan comes to the story, and, you're, and, and David's getting mad, and he turns it on David. And now David's, I mean, it's like the whole wall came down. And you can imagine his, his heart getting stuck in his throat, right? His breathing quickening. You know that feeling, right? And when the like, massive amount of anxiety just falls upon you, and he knows that he has been completely exposed. The Lord knew what happened. And so now David has this, this moment, right? So what's he going to do? Say, ah, come on, Nathan, false prophet, right? That didn't happen. Or does he confess and repent? Now you have to realize like, what's at stake this whole time. If David confesses, First of all, there's no sacrifice in the sacrificial system set up in the Mosaic Law that covers adultery or murder. The punishment for that is death. And second of all, if you remember, Saul was kicked out of being, uh, lost his rule to reign because he had sinned. And so if David were to like come clean on this, not only is he sticking his neck out, that he might die judicially, but that he would, you know, well, if you're dead... You can't rule anymore, right? Or at the very least, you lose your reign. He has, a, he has a lot vested in what happens in this next moment. So now, pause. Psalms 51 was his repentance. Psalms 32 is probably his groanings and tortured soul up to that moment when God took the cover off and he was exposed. Now, Psalms 32, there's no note that actually says this... Uh, David wrote, because of his sin with Bathsheba. There there are clues within it that it probably was. So Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are usually tied together about talking about this incident. Now, Psalm 51 is fresh. It's raw. It's directed solely to God. And it's just weeping and mourning and being contrite and meek and humble before the Lord. Now, Psalm 32 is looking back at a distance. And it's talking about what he experienced up to the moment of forgiveness. And then his experience emotionally after he sought forgiveness. And this is written in the past tense. And it's written to God and to the congregation. So he's sharing this, his, his experiences. And if you look in Psalm 32 verse 8, it's kind of the key to the whole psalm. David says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or will not stay with you. So David's going to demonstrate to us that he was like a horse and mule with a bit in his mouth and is being dragged the way he should go. He was being dragged there. And he experienced so much pain from being dragged there. He's saying, I am a wise teacher now. Because he's using wisdom language here. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I'm going to tutor you by watching you here don't be like this. Don't be slow to ask for forgiveness when you sin. Be quick. Okay. So with these thoughts in mind, let's go to the top of Psalm 32 and we'll go through it. <clears throat> Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, In whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed. Truly happy. Who is truly happy in this world? The one who is truly happy in this world is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, whose iniquity he's not made to bear. Now, he uses three synonyms for sin. The first is transgression. Transgression is a very vivid word. It means to cross over a line, God sets up rules and you step over it. In, in our heads, when we think sin in English, that's transgression. You just sinned. You just disobeyed what God said to do. He uses the word sin. Now, sin is, is a little more interesting, it emphasizes the aspect of falling short. Now, um, in the book of Judges, for example, they talked about the Benjamin slingers who were good, really good. They could swing with their left hand and their right. And and when they threw a stone, they would never miss, never sin. They never missed their mark. They always hit it perfectly. So whereas transgression is the willful disobedience to sin, is the falling short of God's law. Um, Paul describes this in Romans 3. He says, for all have sinned and are continually falling short of the glory of God. You're not living up to the standard which God has set up. And and this is expressed in the ways that we, with our lives, what do we dedicate ourselves to? Do we love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? With the good things the Lord has given us, do we pervert them for uh, for our own good? Eating is good. Gluttony is sin. Eating was not a bad thing in and of itself, but what you've turned it to and made it into, that's what's bad. Now, this is kind of helpful to know that the Bible looks at it both ways. There's transgression and there's falling short. Because sometimes you look across the world and, and you know, the, the grand old happy humanity, right? Um, the, the, you know, all the nations get along, according to YouTube, right? <laughs> or advertising, actually. Advertising wants you to think that everybody's friends and there's no uh, conflict in this world. You look at some people and say, well, I mean, really, God, hell, really? Because it doesn't look like, I mean, mean, that person over there, serial murderer, yeah, I get it, he deserves to go to hell, but like, how about everybody else? Not every person's transgressed in every way possible. But the falling short that makes you a transgressor, all people have. You have completely the potential to do every transgression known to mankind. It is built into your very nature. The only thing you haven't gotten is the opportunity. I really doubt David thought he would be murdering Uriah. I really doubt he had thought that a week before that he would necessarily be having an affair with Bathsheba. yet there he was, having an affair, an illicit baby, murdering a person. He got the opportunity, and his heart just, in his wickedness, did it. So transgression and sin. Now, iniquity. Iniquity is a legal term. It is the guilt that you incur when you do something wrong, when you break God's law. So like in the Levitical law, God says again and again, the person who does that shall bear their iniquity. So, there's, so you stand before a judge, and the judge uh, determines whether or not you have committed a sin. And if you have committed a sin, you are now considered to bear iniquity, and you'll be punished according to the law. The flip side of iniquity would be declared righteous. Someone said, he murdered someone. And all the evidence comes out, and the judge declares, well, no, this person hasn't. He's righteous in this regard. So on the one hand, you're either declared righteous, or on the other hand, you're declared to have iniquity, or declared to be unrighteous. Now, universally, God, as an omniscient judge who knows all things and knows even the intentions of our heart, understands when he looks down with us with an unbiased eye, That this is true of all of mankind. There is none that is righteous. None who declares the status of not guilty. No, not one. Why? All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. No, there is not even one. We fall short completely, consistently, and willingly. And we are therefore made to bear our iniquity you are not in a happy state. But notice the corresponding remedies. We're not left necessarily in those states. Because it says, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. It's as if you never crossed over that line. Whose sin, you're falling short, covered. It's as if you've never fallen short and you hit the bullseye every single time though you know you've missed you are not made to bear the guilt that you deserve, but instead you are declared to be righteous even though you are guilty. Blessed is that man. Grace and mercy has been shown to him. Now, there's one more word if you haven't noticed. Sin, transgression, iniquity. Those three show up together a lot, in the, in the especially in the Old Testament. You'll see those words paired together. Deceit is kind of the oddball. My, my daughter's watching a lot of Sesame Street. One of these things just doesn't belong here. <laughs> one of these things just isn't the same. Yeah, so you have these three that match and are seen together all the time. And there's deceit. And so you read it, and, and one of the things, if you were kind of immersed in this culture, you say, deceit? Oh, that's kind of interesting. I wonder why he put that there. Because now, the rest of the psalm is going to be kind of taking this theme of deceit and working it through. Blessed is, man in, is the man in whose spirit is no deceit. Ah, you see, because David was deceitful, right? David had used deceit upon deceit upon deceit to try to cover up his affair. And, and then his silence afterwards, when he's just sitting as a king on his throne, as if everything were okay, it's deceptive. Almost by definition, if you, just the context, almost by definition, deceit is trying to cover up sin. Deceit is trying to make ourselves look better in the eyes of man and even look better in the eyes of God than we actually are. There's nothing wrong with me. You you put that facade up of deceit so people don't see what's truly going on. So David is deceitful now. What were the effects of his silence? He he didn't go to God. He was hiding his sin. So now, verse 3 4 which which is explanatory 4 when i kept silence my bones they wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night your hand was heavy upon me my strength was dried up as by the heat of, as the heat of summer the sin was severing his fellowship with god David was estranged from God. He was at a distance. And even though he got what he wanted, David was tormented. Even in a story, I I remember just reading that story with David about the guy and his lamb. And just how he just lashed out with anger. Like, this guy is unbalanced. He's obviously not sleeping at night, right? He's obviously um, dealing with some issues deep down inside kind of what we say nowadays, right? He's dealing with some issues. right, that's David. So it says, like, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. He cannot escape the guilt weighing on his conscience day and night. He can't sleep. It's coming to his mind when he's trying to go to sleep. Last thoughts as you go to sleep? I killed Uriah. I have done this sin. You wake up in the morning. It's supposed to be a fresh new day. What are you feeling? I am in sin. I am in sin. And so it, it actually says His body was weakened. He felt weaker. I mean, Humboldt County, come on. The heat of summer, what's that for us? 70, 80? Oh, man, 80. (laughs) Right? The heat of summer, the blistering 130 degrees it could get out there. And you get out in the heat and you just can't do anything anymore. That's the physical effects that David's feeling for holding that sin within himself. Now, it's interesting that he attributes to God. He says, your hand." O Lord, your hand was heavy upon me. It, it's, the Lord knew David's deceit. God knows, right? It was God who was causing this duress. God was the one pressing down with him with, like, his omnipotent hand. And David could not escape it. Now, the Bible is balanced here with regards to physical effects of sin. I mean, we generally think that sin only has physical effects if it's a physical sin. Like, if you do something like smoke crack, right, that's going to affect you physically. But if you do something like lie, it's not going to affect you physically. Okay, that's because we're good 21st Western uh, individuals raised in America, and we we, kind of try to distance um, our emotions from our physical, or even attribute sin as affecting us physically. But the Bible's reminding us, that sometimes your, your, your tiredness and your weakness could be that you're in sin and you know it and you need to repent. But not all physical problems are because of sin. Think of Job. All these things came upon him, he didn't sin. Now, it's interesting. Uh, I was thinking, of course, of, of James about... Um, well, in James 5, it says this. Is anyone among you sick? Sick. James 5.14. Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So it has, James allows for both situations. Sometimes, your sickness might be due to sin. Sometimes your sickness might be due to illness. In which case it says the the elders come and pray for healing. Okay, that would take care of just from illness. On the other side, if there's actually sin involved, then the person needs to confess the sins and be healed. And so this is actually in the Bible. I was shocked. I'm like, really? Your hand heavy upon me and I'm not feeling well. But, I mean, if, if you found yourself, of course, in this situation before, I know there's been times when, like, I've been keeping something to myself, right? And your stomach is like, oh. Yeah, you come in in the presence of the person you know that you have an issue with, right? Your stomach starts doing weird, jumpy things, right? Physical effects. Now, it's painful. You you don't like experiencing this, but it truly is kindness. Could you imagine if you could sin and get away with it every single time with no, uh, no remorse, no guilt? I was, I was listening to uh, someone explaining uh, the new, some news that people, uh, psychiatrists, are trying to come up with a drug to cure PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. But suddenly, they're a little concerned that this drug would also kind of erase your, that feeling of conscience. Like, could you imagine someone just going out and killing a bunch of people, popping a drug, and feeling okay with it the next day? Like, could you imagine if you, if you actually removed your conscience from you, and just how out of control this world could spin so quickly. It's, it's kindness that God makes us feel that things are not well between you and him. God was drawing David back. He would not let him have peace. He was drawing David back. That's why he used the idea of a horse with a bit in his mouth being pulled back. A stubborn mule, like dragging the whole way, but God was still... With, with the pain of the bit in the mouth, drawing him back to him. So how kind of God that he doesn't let us get away with sin. That he does not allow us to stay out of fellowship with one another. I mean, I feel like sometimes if I skip my Bible reading for two days, I feel sick. I'm like, I need to get back to this. What am I doing? <laughs> Why am I staying away from God? Things are not well. So what's the result? Was this, was this accomplished with David? Did God's purpose become fulfilled? When Nathan came and confronted David, so you can imagine this whole time, David just feeling sick, feeling sick, feeling sick, feeling sick, feeling weak and tired, and suddenly Nathan comes and just does what David wasn't going to do for himself, right? He exposes him, and now you've got this moment where you have the moment to confess, right? Now is the time that you're going to confess. So what does David say? It, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Whew. In that moment you could just imagine just feeling already kind of peace wash over him. He said in verse 5 of the Psalms 32, I I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord. There's the three words again by the way. Sin, iniquity, transgression. I will confess my transgression to the Lord. He could not keep silent any longer now it's really interesting that he in verse 5 he uses the word cover again and in verse 1 he used the word cover so in verse 1 is blessed man whose sin is covered in verse 5 I did not cover my iniquity you see when we come into sin there's kind of two responses bad example Adam Adam disobeys God eats the fruit God comes to the garden, and he hides. He's covering himself. They sow fig leaves. They're covering themselves. They're trying to cover themselves. And God says, Adam, what have you done? And so not only is he physically trying to cover himself, he starts blaming everybody but himself. Oh, God. Let me tell you, that serpent, tricky guy. By the way, that woman, defective product, thank you, God. Right? <laughs> the the, the one, Yeah. I am the least culpable person here. God, he just like, sets excuse after excuse, after excuse, after excuse. And God's enough. I judge you first. You're responsible. And so there is that covering that, that Adam is doing, and he won't admit his guilt. He just won't. Now here's the opposite. David is admitting his guilt. He agrees with the consensus of God. He's, he's not just saying, okay, God, I did it. Yep, yep, you got me. I did these things. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yep, did it. No. This was Psalms 51. God I have sinned against you. God, I was brought forth in iniquity. I am a wretched, horrible man. I agree with your consensus that I have iniquity. Now, when man tries to cover his own sin, he's he's left in his sin. When God covers our sin, our sins are blotted out. See, we can't do it. He can do it. Only God is able to erase the effects of sin. Now Psalms Psalms thirty two, Psalms fifty one, they become kind of these landmark psalms for a very good reason. My wife and I have been on this campaign, campaign in the um, reading about David. Our campaign goes something like, "David's a jerk." I mean, because you think of David as being like this great, awesome dude, right? This hero king, and we keep reading. It, it's like, man, he did that. Man, he did that. Man, he did that. And, and then we get to one time, Brand was just looking at uh, this whole thing about he sinned against uh, with adultery. she's like he should die. Why does the king get get off? Right? It's because he's king. <laughs> You know, the king gets to do whatever he wants, right? Well, God is, can smite down whoever he wants to smite down. But that actually, like, that question's the right question. That's the question that a lot of people end up looking at, even in the Bible. Why was David told he was not going to die? Uh, by the way, I forgot to mention. When David admitted his guilt to Nathan, instead of trying to cover up, no, 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 it wasn't me. When David said, no, I have sinned against the Lord, da- Nathan said, you will not die. It's a big deal because <laughs> that's what he deserves, legally. But you will not die. Your child's going to die. There's going to be toil in your house. Uh, children are going to be slaughtered. Yeah, but you will not die. You'll feel effects of it. But you yourself will not die. So, Paul, in the New Testament, Paul in Romans chapter 4 looks back at this psalm, Psalms 32, and says, that, my friends, is an example of justification by faith and not by works. How do you get iniquity off of you? Not by works. You could never do enough to erase the fact that you've done something wrong. You have someone who murdered another person, and they stand before the court and they say, well, I'm a good person. Look at all these good things I have done. The court says, it's a, but you murdered someone, and you still have to pay the penalty for that sin. So no amount of working will ever remove the fact that you committed that act. Now, the bigger issue, the, the biggest issue of all is, is what the Lord said in Exodus 34. When he is saying, like who I, when he renewed his covenant with the people of Israel, He says, "The Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness." keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions of sin. He is a forgiving, merciful, loving God. But, who by no means clears the guilty. (laughs) In which case you almost want to say, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Like, but by no means will clear the guilty. And, And this is the tension in the Bible. God is loving and God is perfectly just he will save but he will punish sin and for him to not punish sin would be unjust so somehow sin must be paid for and so that's why it's attached to his justification by faith because justification by faith means we didn't pay the penalty of sin Christ paid the penalty of sin you see this psalm is anticipating the future messiah every believer who is saved in the old testament was looking forward to the remedy that God was going to bring. I cannot cleanse myself. Only you can cleanse me, God. Only you're the one who can do it. I put my faith in that. But we, as New Testament believers, understand so much more. They looked dimly at a distance. They understood that something was going to happen, something big, because it took care of sin. But now we see it clearly, that Christ came as, in our place and died as our substitute. Oh, David, you're feeling bad because you're being pressed upon by the hand of God in your sin, Christ was crushed. Crushed. Completely. So you would not have to feel that hand crush you all the way. No bull or ox could make atonement for David's sin or our sin. It had to be something precious. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills really? How precious do you think they are? No, he sends his own son to die on our behalf to take our place. The father was pleased to crush his son so he could bear our iniquities. And we know that the atonement is sufficient. Christ said on the cross, it is finished. There is no wrath for those who are united to me by faith. No wrath at all. You will not have to bear anything. Paul would say there's no condemnation None. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None whatsoever. Christ took it all. So whenever you feel the sting of sin or the hand of God as it seems pressing upon you, know that it is the loving hand of a father who is disciplined you and drawing you back because he loves you. Christ was risen from the dead. He did not stay in the grave. He was raised from the dead declaring victory over sin and death and we too will be Raised from death. So though in our decaying mortal flesh we die, the wages of sin, we're raised. It has no grip on us. And we are raised with him. So here we have, in this first psalm, truly blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered, covered and it is not made to bear iniquity. It says, if you never sinned, and Christ's righteousness is given to you, so you're declared not iniqui- iniquitous, righteous. Christ is righteous, not your righteousness. Now, the second half of the psalm is the proper response. Okay? So with this great truth that you have now experienced as a believer in Christ, what are some of the implications? Well, it says, first of all, Therefore, verse 6, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found, and surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. So the first thing is, all right, we understand that we still sin, but come quickly. Don't wait. When you sin, deal with it now. Don't wait days and days and days before we deal with the sin you'll start feeling the effects of sin in your life and the destruction that sin brings about. No, be very fast. Go to the Lord now. Now's the day of salvation. Go. Don't tarry. And, and we need to be encouraging each other to do that as a congregation. If, if someone's in sin, you encourage them. Don't be far off. Go to your Lord now. I, I've, I've been kind of wondering about this. And surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. I mean, waters um, just in, in the in that culture is just turbulence and chaos, and the sea was not a friendly place right They didn't know what was at the bottom of the sea. They knew that you know beasts and winds and sails the there's so much um, like folklore built up of what's nasty in the sea, and it's true because there's sharks and other things that eat you, and the sea just like destroys ships that are made out of wood, right. <laughs> And then also, great waters was like the flood of judgment. I couldn't couldn't land which way the psalmist was taking it. Is it so that the judgments won't reach you or the chaos of sin won't take over you? Yeah, probably the same, right, in some sense. So, if you confess your sin, surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. And it's, there's two sides to this. It's not just that God is no longer angry with us, but that he actually is a defender of us. It's not that he's, like, cessation of hostility, but now he turns to fight for you. Because look at these next three phrases. Verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So now not only is God no longer pressing his hand upon you, but now he's a shelter for you. That you could run to him and he helps you. You preserve me from trouble. That word preserve is like a watchman, a guard, standing guard over you. So you have a guard 24-7 as it were, standing over you, and it is the Lord, the Lord your God, who stands over you and guards you and keeps you from trouble. And He says, "And you surround me with shouts of deliverance." And that's very vivid imagery: that that moment in a battle when all seems lost, and then the, like another wave of reinforcements comes in, and there's a great shout of victory because you know that you're about to win this battle. That's what the Lord brings, as it were, brings to your life. So, victory where there was once defeat. So, proper responses, go quickly to the Lord, and turn to the Lord as a hiding place. You you have that access. Now, in verse 8, we already looked at these. I will instruct and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. As we are people who understand and have experienced this great love and freedom in our lives, we should not stop reminding each other of it. David's telling his testimony. He did it in a song. Well, we should be reminding each other of our testimonies, how the Lord was our deliverer over this sin or that, over this circumstance and that. We need that help. We need that reminder. We're so quick to forget. And, so, and it says, I was struck to you. So it's almost as if he's saying, I'm going I'm to discipline you. I will be here with you, helping you through this. This is a psalm, by the way. Right? This is a psalm that's supposed to be written and sung in a congregation. This is supposed to be, like, memorizable, people singing with it, right, about David's sin and his forgiveness. Well, we do that all the time. You know, all of our songs, think about it, they have, usually have a lot of the cross in them. So you are a hiding place for me, you preserve me from trouble, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. In verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Now this, so we're kind of at the back end of the psalm. So now, just like he started with blessed, truly happy is the man for whom this is true, now he's closing it with, many are the stars of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Now steadfast love is God's covenant love. It's a special, unique love that he puts on his people. As if if to say, if the God of this universe is against you, truly, sorrows will come upon you. But if the God of this universe is for you, and He surrounds you with a steadfast love, as Romans says, what would separate us from the love of Christ Jesus? And in talk of streams, well, trials, or persecution, or tribulation, or sword, height, or depth, or anything, demons, principalities, powers, kings, anything. Can anything separate you? For his love with which the Lord encamps around you. Not at all. He turns all things for good. All things for good. Even though they feel bad, they turn good for those who are in Christ Jesus. So truly, the one with whom the good Lord sets his steadfast love and surrounds him with it is a truly happy person. And it belongs to those who turn to him. Who turn to him in their sin And admit with him, I am truly guilty of my sin. And I need you to save me. So it says in verse 10, rejoice. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, you upright in heart. Because you know you were not righteous. You knew you were not upright in heart. But the Lord made you righteous and he made you upright in heart. Rejoice and be glad. That is the ultimate proper response to this great salvation is praise. Praise in whatever way that manifests itself, we are to be worshipers of our God. So when we sing, we sing passionately because we know this truth to be true in ourselves. This motivates the deepest singing that you could possibly conjure up in heaven when you see the Lamb who is slain. You'll join with millions of voices proclaiming it. And you will be deeply excited. Deeply excited. Worship deeply. And rejoicing isn't just with your mouth, but in your actions. We serve the Lord because we love him. We do what he asks us to do because we love him. And we proclaim him to our neighbors and to the nations because we love him, we know what he's done for us, and we want other people to experience this as well. This is the great motivation for evangelism. This is the great motivator for missions. You could happily die, happily die proclaiming this. Most of what the application you see, I mean, you can totally see how individual this is, right? Okay, so in my heart, individually, I need to this, this, and this, and this. But there's also a corporate element. Like I said, this is a corporate psalm. We sing this together. So all these things are not just true of us individually, true of us corporately. We tell other people together. I don't know if you've heard of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a preacher over in England. Um, he said, I, I read this book by him. He made this most fascinating comment. If a bunch of Christians are in a church and feeling all humdrum about the worship and all humdrum about the preaching of the word and humdrum in their prayers and an unbeliever comes in, what is he going to take away from this? It's a bunch of humdrum people with a boring message. But if we were a people who are corporately excited and corporately thankful and express that appropriately and truly have imbibed that and it expresses itself appropriately they're going to see that there's something here there's something authentic here and that in its in a way will draw people in it's evangelistic when the church is excited about their great salvation we also need each other we, we talk a lot with each other, but we, do we ever talk about things that matter? Yes, and then sometimes no. Sometimes you need to be deliberate about your conversation with other believers. There's been times that I felt like when I was talking to someone, yeah, something doesn't seem right with them. And do I press in on that? No, because, you know, space, guys, right? <laughs> we, don't give, we don't get in the heart stuff. That's not what we're about. And they come to find out, big time sin. I was thinking to myself, oh! If only I had just kind of pursued what was going on at that time, maybe it would have gotten as out of hand as it did. So we need to be people keeping each other accountable. To be asking each other hard questions, how are you doing? Are you in sin? If, if you recognize symptoms of sin in someone's life, eh, why don't you take make some inquiry? And believe me, I. I mean, I don't think Nathan, uh, David was feeling really glad Nathan came to him initially <laughs> and, and called him out on it, but I bet you a half an hour later he was. Maybe Okay, maybe after his, everything resolved, his child died. so There was some weeping. But when he knew the joy of his restoration, he was glad for it. So um, let's turn to communion. Communion is corporate. We get to rejoice yet again in the great deliverance that the Lord has delivered us with. And even though there's, there's that sorrow over sin, there's rejoicing because we're forgiven. So let's take it together. If the ushers would come forward. Communion is about remembrance. <coughs> remembrance is a, it's a rich word. It doesn't just mean, oh, I remember that Christ died for me. Remembrance is, is drawing for something that happened in the past and bringing it up to the moment now, and it has an effect right now. Lord, don't remember my sin. Don't draw that sin from the past, although you're omniscient and you know it happened. Don't make it affect what happens right now. Don't hold my sin against me. And likewise, when we celebrate the communion as remembrance, we remember that Christ died for us. And that affects right now our lives. That we are, our sins are cleansed. And so we always come to communion confessing sin. Admitting that we will never be good enough. Be a holding with faith that our sins have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. If you can't acknowledge your sin, the gospel will never be good news. It just never will. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Um, so please stand. Um, I probably actually should probably pray, too. <laughs> pray, and then we'll... Uh, sing together, but let's bow our heads. Lord, we are truly happy people. Lord, we have been blessed for you have forgiven us of our sins. Lord, I ask, Lord, if there's any who have not come to you who are still relying on them picking themselves up and dusting themselves off, Lord, that you would show them that you are a loving Father who will cleanse them just as they are. All they have to do is reach hold of you in faith. Lord, and you'll be the Father who runs to us. Lord, I pray that you remind us as believers, that you care, when we're, <coughs> you care that we're in sin, you care about the effects it has on our lives and the lives of others, and that you'll be quick to forgive. Lord, I pray that the gospel will continue to grow in our hearts as the best news we have ever heard, and that it would be our greatest joy to sing with rejoicing and to proclaim it to others. So, Lord, will you do that in us? We thank you for the blood of Jesus who has washed from all our sins. Thank you for your spirit who is going to empower us to do this. So, with great hope and expectation, we sing.